Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Uh, we're going to get started with some worship. We're going to praise the Lord. If you're able, uh, go ahead and stand and uh, sing with me, all who are thirsty.
full of joy to our Lord and Savior. Dear God, we know that no deeds could ever make us right with you. We can be self-righteous, and for that we ask forgiveness. But to be righteous in your eyes can only come through your son Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross. And for that we are so thankful. We are born sinful, unholy, and ungodly. But our hearts are changed when we accept you into our lives, giving us your righteousness, being right with you. Please guard and protect our hearts from evil. You know what we will face each day. And we are so thankful we do not have to do this life alone because we have you. Lord, we pray that with your righteousness embedded in our hearts, with the protection you provide, we will live humbly, faithful, and loving to all life around us without envy and gossip. Help us, Lord, not to worry. No matter how far off track the world marches away from your word, help us to keep the noise and the talk on the streets a lifetime away from our hearts. Never to change us or persuade us to move one fraction for the left or to the right so we stay rooted in your love. Help us to take our cues from Scripture, to do everything in our power to keep the peace, to keep the unity. Don't let our flesh cancel, leave, blame, or avoid when we disagree. Help us to respond the way you want us to respond, no matter how uncomfortable. Help us to live by your Spirit, no longer under the control of the flesh, knowing the evidence of righteousness is your fruit, is the fruit of your Spirit. So we stay elegant in your righteousness. Lord, I know we will not always get it right, but with you in our lives, we will get it right more than we get it wrong. And that is what makes the difference in our lives. You, Lord, make all the difference in our lives. Help us to fully grasp the concept of your righteousness. Make us more like you. May Jesus Christ be praised always. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Uh, just a quick reminder about our bulletin, which you should have received on your way inside. On it, we have two cards. We have a connect card and a prayer card. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, take a second and fill out that connect card. It says, get connected with us. Um, uh, let, us uh, let us know that you're here. Let us uh, get in touch and stay in touch. It's also a great way to find out any fun things happening at the church and also um, helps uh, if you'd like to get involved or some fun ways to get involved as well. Now, on the other side, we have a prayer card. Let us pray for you. Um, take a moment. Please fill out that prayer card. Let us know what's on your heart and if we can pray for you. Um, and after the service, uh, please take these cards. You can drop them off in the baskets on the way out, um, along with any tithes or offerings. Um, and uh, with that, I'd like to have uh, Pastor Steve. Thank you. Thanks for your prayer. Thanks. Well, good morning. Uh, let me ask you a question as we uh, continue this series in the Beatitudes. Who do you listen to? Uh, who do you listen to? Uh, what pundits do you listen to? What news people do you listen to? Uh, who do you go to when you have something that you need to resolve? I guess the question is, to whom do you ascribe authority? Who has authority in your life to set you straight on things, to guide you in things, uh, to participate in things with you? Uh, if you don't know, what do you do? You ask, right? 
But when you do know, you know what checker to go to at, at Vons or Pavilions or wherever you go, Trader Joe's. Of course, Trader Joe's, you can go to any of them because they're all like stellar personalities. They all act like you're home from college or something. And, but there's other places where you go and you think, oh, I don't want to go to that person. Uh, uh, do you have a favorite DMV person? Uh, you will never have a favorite DMV person. Uh, don't worry about it. Governmental agencies are notorious for, for being people who don't care. And it's not that the people don't care, they're overwhelmed. But when you find one who acts like they're not overwhelmed and that you're the most important thing in the world, they have your attention. And they help you get to where you need to go. Uh, Anytime you have to fill out a complicated form, who is the person that you call? If you have a question that you need answered and you need a quick answer, you can't wait for days or weeks, to whom do you go? I'm sure if it's about your devices, uh, your electronic devices, you go right to the closest 10-year-old. You just know. That kid will know, she will know, he will know. Um, uh, we're coming up on uh, Super Bowl. I, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, uh, <laughs> years ago, uh, I was part of this golf tournament, which is a, that's a whole other story. I think it was just like they needed one more person, so I get pulled in, and there's, I'm with two other guys. There's three of us, and it's a pro-am with all these professional athletes, and so we're going to be including a fourth person. And, you know, walking into this swanky golf course in, you know, here in San Diego, uh, there's all these massive people, massive. I mean, the NBA guys are just, you know, uh, huge as they are. And then all the football guys are huge. And so we're waiting for our guy, and I'm asking our, you know, my host, well, who's our guy? The guy, we don't know. And so this guy, we're going to start any minute, and finally this guy swoops up with a wild-looking young woman next to him. And um, he jumps out of the car, the cart, and he's barefoot, and he looks around, and he puts on his shoes. He grabs a club, he walks up, and he just whacks this ball. This guy's about 5'8", a slender guy, obviously an athlete. And so I'm looking at the guys, and the guy's looking at me, and we're like, so finally I said, hey, you know, great to have you here. And he tells us his name. And I don't know what he plays. I don't know what he does. So finally I thought, I know. I said, hey, what's your favorite athletic experience so far? And he stopped, and like he had a lot of them to think about. So he stopped, he's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe. I guess it was running back a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I'm like, all of us stopped, and we're thinking, all of a sudden this guy's credibility goes from here uh, to here, and we said, you, you ran back a touchdown in the Super Bowl. He goes, yeah, that's what I do. I said, that's amazing. Uh, well, then after that, whenever I, I would see the guy play football, he played with you know, the Falcons, he played with the Chargers, he played with the Patriots. He was always a guy. The, now it's pretty common, uh, these, these smaller guys relative to the guys in the field doing these amazing things. This guy's credibility rose incredibly. He had authority now to talk about football because we're now asking him all these questions. about What's it like? What are you doing? How do you, right? This is what Jesus did. He ran back to, no wait, what Jesus did was speak with authority. And you can imagine when he came into a town or he stood up in a synagogue or when people gathered in a public place or out in the, out in the boonies, the question was, who is this? And whenever Jesus spoke, people would say, but in a different way, who is this? Who is this? His disciples, who were with him all the time, were asking that for three years. Just when they thought they understood who he was, 
something crazy would happen, like they were going to get overwhelmed in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, he'd calm the wind and the waves, and they'd say, who is this? Now this not, might, might not be the way you look at Jesus, because if you don't understand Jesus' inherent authority, then it's always, Jesus, why are we talking about Jesus? Get over it. That's old news, that's irrelevant news. But we gather every week to talk about Jesus because we're absolutely not overwhelmed and convinced to to believe in something that isn't true. We're absolutely overwhelmed and convinced because He is true. And He has authority. And it's not just authority that's verified historically. There's nobody whose life uh, and death, resurrection, is better verified in history than Jesus. He has more credibility than than any other historic person I can think of. Uh, and, and, and all of a sudden you realize there's some authority that comes with him that we want to unpack. And so we gather every week and we talk about Jesus. Why? Because his authority, his authority gives him credibility. And when we look at his authority and his credibility, we see his power. And the crazy thing, this is the thing that's really overwhelming and, and, uh, uh, and provocative, is that his power is rooted in humility and vulnerability. What a combination. What a combination. Now the young guy that, you know, was the NFL player had authority because of his incredible uh, performance on the field. But man, the guy had no humility and no vulnerability. And, 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 but we thought, okay, he's in his early 20s, just, you know, there's nothing that 20 years will not improve in this guy. Life will somehow uh, convince him it's better to be humble and, and, uh, and, and vulnerable. But this is what captivates us about Jesus. Jesus claims authority to right-size our understanding of how life is supposed to work. And because of his demonstrated performance, his life, his death, his resurrection, his claims matching his character, aligning with his stated mission and purpose, and being vindicated in his resurrection from the dead, it gives him earned authority. It's not assumed authority, it's earned authority. And this is what the people, hearing these Beatitudes for the first time, were confronted with. He speaks like no one else we've ever heard speak. He speaks with one having authority. Uh, and then you see in this chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel where we find the Beatitudes, immediately following the Beatitudes, he starts to unpack them. And we'll get to that uh, as we move through uh, the winter. And he says things like this, you've heard it said, and he would say something, and then he would say, but I tell you. He would say what was conventional, accepted knowledge, wisdom, authority, and then he would simply right-size it, reframe it, realign it with God's eternal purposes. And he'd say, you've heard it said, but let me tell you this, but I tell you. And the people said, he speaks with such authority. They were blown away, as is anyone who takes the time to thoughtfully consider what Jesus says, what Jesus does, what Jesus has accomplished. I'm saying this to you who are believers to remind you why we do this. I'm saying this to you who are perhaps skeptics, just visiting today, saying, I'm curious, I'm open, I'm exploring, that there's more here than meets the eye. And the further you go in, the more impressive he is. Most of us want to make a big first impression, and after that it's a bit of a letdown. 
But Jesus just keeps getting better and better and better. And it's a no way kind of a thing. Seriously, you did that? All things were created through you? That you're Lord of heaven and earth? That you know every star and planet in this massive ongoing universe that we can hardly even begin to scratch the surface of? And yet you care about us? And so in the Beatitudes, and we talked about this in the last couple of weeks, the Beatitude is just a way of saying blessings. Uh, in these blessings that Jesus lays out, uh, he, he addresses our essential needs as human beings. Uh, you know Maslow's need hierarchy. You need air. You need food and water. You know, it goes down to all the, all the needs. Well, Jesus speaks to our most essential needs, and he answers each need from the perspective of his kingdom now come to earth. Now, to say God's kingdom has come to earth is sort of odd because we think uh, it doesn't look much different because we can't see things from the perspective of his kingdom. And that's why Jesus would say things like, now, I know you believe this, but let me just tell you it's this way. So he answers each need that we have from the perspective of his kingdom come to earth. And we find out that we are poor, that we're brokenhearted, that we're oppressed, we're hungry and thirsty, and it goes on and on. And on one hand, you think these are offensive, but then you realize, no, these are life-giving corrections, course corrections and positional corrections of who we are and where we are. You might be grieving, but you will be comforted. You might feel spiritually impoverished, but yours is the kingdom of heaven, etc. So are you spiritually poor? Well, the kingdom of heaven is for you. Are you facing grief and loss? You'll find comfort from the Lord. Are you willing to humble yourself? Blessed are the meek. Well, God will faithfully provide what you need. And then he says this. This is the, um, the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I, it begs the question, what do you crave most? When you talk about being hungry and thirsty, what do you crave most? Again, Super Bowl coming up, what will you be eating or serving on Super Bowl Sunday? Do you know, <laughs> this is a super important fact, though just arriving today is worth this information, this is the biggest sales date for avocados in the world. Avocado growers live and die by Super Bowl Sunday. There are more avocados sold to fuel Super Bowl Sunday than any other time of the year. We can pretty much pray and go home now because that is a powerful fact to, to have with you. Super Bowl Sunday is probably the, you talk about this country being a melting pot, this is probably the most melting pot day of the year. Why? Because everybody gets into the swing of things whether they like football or not. It's a big giant event. Uh, it's, a, it, it, we have, it's, been a, it's a massive marketing, brilliant, genius thing that Super Bowl has become. And so everybody trots out their favorite ethnic foods, for them just normal food. If you're not them, then it's ethnic food. And then they, they contribute it to what is standard American food. And so on Super Bowl Sunday, it's probably the most interesting food day of the year uh, because all these people express themselves in a way that you say, oh, wow, uh, who knew? You could have kimchi nachos. I didn't know. I didn't know they, they made them and... Glad to know you enjoy them. So people would say, I crave, I crave the food on Super Bowl Sunday because nobody in their right mind would eat it year-round. Um, it's a calorie bomb, you know, but 
It is so fun, so festive, and really, I, I, um, I read a great article this week. It said, talking about people's experience coming to this country, uh, and people in the last 30 years who have immigrated, who were born here, and maybe the first generation in their family from wherever they came, and they're all saying, you know, it was, it was the most amazing day of the year because it, w- it would bring us all together as a family, as a culture, as a community. We eat all of our food. We eat all the, all the crazy American foods. And we watch this game that we don't understand. And after a while, we stopped watching the game. We just loved being together. So Super Bowl Sunday was something they would crave. They would say, I earnestly look forward to it. That's what craving is. You earnestly desire something. I don't mean crave as in, a, in an addiction. I crave heroin. Um, but nachos are just one degree lower than craving something that you'd be addicted to. What do you crave? When you hear the term hunger and thirst, what comes to your mind? What do you just love? What's your secret pleasure? Is it the single Oreo or the double Oreo? Is it anything deep fried at the fairgrounds? They can deep fry anything. Uh, you may as well just give them your money and let them deep fry it and watch it, you know, because it is, you know, the smell of that place is so good. What do you crave most? And so the big question, of course, of our, on our focus today is, are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? For somehow this thing called righteousness that the Bible talks about that includes justice, making right things that are wrong, restoring rightness to things that have been wronged. Righteousness, are you rightly aligned in relationships that matter? Righteousness, are you one who can be trusted when nobody is looking with what you do with your time, talent, and treasure? Righteousness, is your word your bond? Righteousness, not that you're perfect, but can people depend on you? Righteousness, because they know if they go to your check stand, if they go to your queue at whatever they need to get done, you're the one who's going to be able to handle it and give them the good news or the bad news and give it to them in a way, us in a way, that we, we believe you. Nothing worse than sitting, waiting for an airplane, and you've got an Olight 30, gone through all the rigmarole to get there, and you're waiting, and they're telling you, uh, we have a delay with the plane, only to find out 45 minutes later that some knucklehead walks up in uniform and says, I'm sorry, I'm late. And you go, why did you say sorry you're late? That's a death wish. Um, better just to, you know. But the idea is that you can depend on righteousness. You can depend on righteousness. You crave righteousness. Why? Because it's, among, it's the safest place on the planet. In a dangerous world, righteousness is, a, is an oasis. It's a haven. Uh, our church supports, uh, we personally support a home uh, that uh, is in San Diego that helps women who have been caught up in human trafficking to be restored. It's called Generation Hope. I, I just think, what a fantastic thing to think that these women, these dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of women who've come through that home onto a better life, the life that they were meant for, would realize that this is a place of righteousness. This is a place of righteousness. To think that there are places that we know you can go and you'll be okay. See, that's what righteousness does. It gives us a deep sense of hope and security in an otherwise uh, turbulent world. Are you hungry and thirsty for that? Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness, not just in others, but in you? And that's the, that's the issue that Jesus is laying out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me ask you this. What are you like when you're really hungry and thirsty? You're relentless, aren't you? Uh, having been recently with some like four-year-olds and one-and-a-half-year-olds, 
I can tell you that everything is fine until it's not. You know this from your own experience. A kid can be running around like a maniac having fun, laughing, and all of a sudden they're hungry, and bam, everything changes. They're tired. Everything goes away. Uh, and, 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 you know, ideally this works itself out over time. By the time you're 40 or 50, it starts to dissipate. But you know how you are when you're hungry. Now, because you're an adult and mature and thoughtful, you always think ahead, and so you don't ever find yourself in situations where you're absolutely ravenously hungry or thirsty. But when you have found yourself in those situations, it's not pretty, is it? You're mopey, you're miserable, uh, you're demanding, you're cranky. Uh, when you're a kid, you have no self-awareness, um, but as an adult uh, of kids, uh, you need to think, this kid's going to need a snack, this kid's going to need a nap, this kid's going to need to learn and play. So this idea of hungering and thirsting is so compelling that it becomes a priority of how we divide our day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, planning um, a vacation, where are we going to eat? If you come from the kind of family uh, or culture that says, it's such a great lunch, what are we going to have for dinner? You're planning the next meal while you're enjoying the meal, right? I mean, this is that, you're not just being gluttonous, you're saying, because this means so much. It's like all those families on Super Bowl Sunday. We all get together, we eat, we're together, something beautiful happens here. So this idea of hungering and thirsting, now applied to righteousness, says that there's other needs that are intrinsically part of having been made in God's image that we need to be hungry and thirsty for. It's not enough just to be hungry and thirsty for food. The longest, most boring meal of your life would be to have a long dinner with food and wine geeks who don't care about people, who don't care about relationships. All they care about is food and wine. It's the longest meal of your life. Because at some point you go, I don't really care anymore. Impressive, delicious, fantastic, but let me out of here. This is, this is punishment. This is not pleasure. So the idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness says we're hungering and thirsting just like we would for food and drink. Essential things. For things that could seem to be fairly intangible like love, justice, mercy, peace, personal peace, peace in families, peace in the world. And see this break in our relationship with God has messed us up and it's not pretty. It's pretty awful actually. And that's why Jesus came into the world. He came in the world to set things right in the way that a great meal or a cool drink sets us right when we're hungry and when we're thirsty. Two quick stories. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Jerusalem, high elevation, southern part of Israel, north. So they're going down from Jerusalem, but they're going north. We always think of north as up. They're going north, and they have to go through Samaria. Uh, we, know the, we know Samaria basically as the West Bank, uh, the West Bank of the Jordan River. So the area between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, a lot of it is called Samaria. And the Samaritans uh, were the residual people of the ten tribes that were carried off into captivity never to return. Uh, some of them were able to trickle back, but meanwhile uh, the authorities brought in people from other places, and they somehow mixed uh, with those Jews who came back, and they came up with kind of a defective, funky version of Judaism that was not acceptable to the people of Israel, the last remaining tribes that lived in the Jerusalem area. And so from then on, it was just this big conflict. And Jews would walk around Samaria if they, had, if they could. And Samaritans, you know, the good Samaritan story, it's meant to be shaming the people who are hearing it. How could a, how could a Samaritan be good? It was a ridiculous story that Jesus told, only to find out that 
when Jesus asked the punchline of people, so who was the hero in this story? They go, the one who helped the guy. Oh, the Samaritan. Yeah, that's the guy. So Jesus is moving through Samaria with his, with his, his crew. They stop at a well. It's a famous well, historically in, in Israel's history. And the guys go, oh, man, uh, we didn't know we brought food. Let's go into the village, get some food. We'll be right back. So Jesus is there. A woman comes midday. You know the story, probably. Uh, she comes at midday, which is odd, because typically people would come early in the day when it's cool. And they have a whole day ahead of them for cooking, cleaning, whatever. She comes in the middle of the day on her own, and here's Jesus, and he says, may I have a drink of water? And she stops and says, whoa, that's weird. You're a Jewish man. You're talking to me, a Samaritan woman. I'm 0 for 2 with you. And they have this conversation. And she is starting to say some things about, well, you know, this is what we believe as Samaritans. And he said, you know, um, you, th- God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Salvation comes through Israel. And there will come a time when we will worship in spirit and truth. And she starts off again about, oh, well, you know, theoretically, he, she, he, he said to her, you know, um, I know you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your own. She's flabbergasted. She goes, oh, so you're a prophet. And then they have this conversation, a very thoughtful conversation. And he says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so she's just dumbfounded. She gets her water, and, and as she's preparing to leave, the other disciples show up with food, and they're like, what was that? You're talking to a lady, and she leaves. And, and uh, they say, well, do you want to eat? Because no, I have food you don't know about. You brought food? No, no. My food is to do the Father's will. And they're completely flummoxed. She returns um, with a bunch of people from the village saying, we got to hear more about this. This lady who we don't hold in high regard told us some very compelling things. We want to hear it from you. So Jesus spends two days with these people, finding that they had a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he was the first person who'd ever been able to speak into them. This is in John's Gospel, chapter 4. John 6, Jesus has been moving back and forth between north and south. Uh, he feeds 5,000 people, one of two occasions when he feeds thousands and thousands of people. Now 5,000, whatever number you see, feeding 3,000, 5,000, those are the men. doesn't include the women and the children included in that. So he feeds 5,000 and he's exhausted and so he gets away to a quiet place and these people find him and they want more information. And so he has a long conversation with them. And finally he says, For the bread of God is a bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, sir, always give us this bread. We had the bread bread that you provided miraculously. We want this bread you're talking about. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now they understand he's talking about not physical food. He's speaking about those needs that are essential needs in us uh, that, w- that he set up initially in the Beatitudes and, and, and now he's unpacking throughout his ministry. These, these essential needs without which we are less 
than what we were created to be. So you can have the best of everything available to you at all times. If these needs that Jesus addresses aren't met, you're miserable. You'll be hungry and thirsty, but for all the wrong things. Probably all good things for the most part. We can be hungry and thirsty for evil things. Our culture right now is so confused about what makes a great film. John and I watched this film last night. We watched part of it, and it, it was we'd seen a, an earlier version of it. It was fun, you know. Um, and all of a sudden, we're watching this movie. We're going, "This is creepy. This is just a creepy way of of, of treating people and seeing people." And it worked in with a very exciting, attractive movie. We're like, "We don't want to watch this." We can hunger and thirst for what are good things, but are so distorted and defaced and deformed. We go, I, I don't want that. The problem is, in our culture, so many of these things come wrapped up together. So you're in a situation where there's some good here, but I'm going to sit through so much other stuff to get to it. But for the most part, the things we hunger and thirst for are good things. The problem is, if all we know are those things, and we're pursuing just those things, and we're discounting the things of God, oh, that's that Jesus thing. Don't, I'm tired of hearing about your Jesus thing. I don't need Jesus. I'm a very spiritual person. Okay. What does that look like? Why do you seem to be craving things that will not give you spiritual satisfaction? Because that's all I got, man. It's the best the world can offer, and I'm in. Yeah, you're in. You're in trouble. You're in danger. You're at risk. So Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Notice that Jesus doesn't say hunger and thirst for blessedness. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst. You're not hungering and thirsting for blessedness. We have been blessed. How do you know? God created the world and us in his image. Yeah, but we're separated from God by sin. Right. But God himself in Christ came into the world. You are blessed. Blessed in the way that he's come to give you access to him, to build, to bridge that gap that separates you. We are blessed. Now we need to hunger for the things that he alone can provide. So our hungering and thirsting isn't for blessedness. We don't hunger and thirst for a spiritual high. If we just sang the right songs, if we just had the right stories or jokes, if we just did whatever, I'd feel so entertained and I'd feel so close and warm and fuzzy. Instead, what, what, what we find is that uh, the Lord is speaking to the deep needs in our lives in ways that he says, you are blessed because I'm here. You're not experiencing the blessing because you're closed off. You're surrounded by blessing and you, you won't even see it. You have eyes to see, but you do not see. You have ears to hear, but you will not hear. You're looking at the wrong things and listening to the wrong things. And so it's this wisdom of God that he provides in righteousness that allows us to look with discernment at the world around us, not to judge it, but to say, I want to be discerning in terms of what I watch, what I listen to, how I speak, how I do what I do. Not to be smarter or holier than thou, but to say, what would it look like if I got aligned with God's purposes for me? I think my humor would be better. My language would be more articulate. The way I, I would see things would be more clear. The way I treated people would have more compassion and clarity. Yeah, I'd still have all the deep emotions that come with living in a fallen world, but I'd somehow navigate it in a different way. We're, we're aware of our absolute, absolute need would uh, God alone can provide. And all of a sudden we get drawn into this virtuous life that isn't a life of virtue based on trying to prove something. It's, it's a life of virtue because we're becoming something. It's it, Because we're abiding in Christ, we're learning to listen to Him and learn from Him and be nourished in Him. All of a sudden love and joy and peace, 
patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, self-control start to emerge in our lives. We're going, where did this come from? It's the fruit of God's Spirit. It's the result of eating better, drinking better. So what do hunger and thirst do? They focus us on our need. They get our attention. In the spiritual sense, they allow us to focus on God and say, so God, what do I need? And how do you want to provide for the need I have? I've done everything else I know to, uh, know to do. You know, yeah, you have, but what we know how to do is not the end of the story. See, hunger and thirst don't satisfy us. Well, I've been hungering and thirsting. That's not the satisfaction. It's the getting those needs met that's the satisfaction. So hunger and thirst don't satisfy. They motivate us. They reveal the urgency of our need. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're feeling bored out of your gourd right now, if when you look at the Bible you go, I don't even want to read anymore, don't panic. Don't dismiss yourself and say, I just, I guess I don't qualify. Say, hey, this is where I'm hungry and thirsty and I don't even know what to do. I'm in that funk. I'm in that hungry, thirsty um, fog. And I need to turn to somebody and say, I don't even know what to do right now. Here, sit down. We're going to feed you. We can't do it alone. If you're feeling guilty because you're thinking, you know, the thrill is gone. I don't, my faith is kind of irrelevant to me. Uh, you can join King David. In Psalm 51, he says, restore the joy to my salvation. I've so gotten out of it that I've done some things I'm really embarrassed about. I can't go back to what I used to be, and so I'm going to just forget about it. Lots of times people will never come to church when things aren't going well. And I'm thinking, that's when you should come to church. Be like if you saw somebody bleeding or limping and you go, whoa, what happened? Oh, I had this accident. Let's go to the hospital. Oh, I don't want to go because I'll look all messed up. It's like, oh, wait, that's where you go when you're all messed up. Go to the hospital. They won't be shocked. You won't be embarrassed. They won't shame you for being bloody and broken. They'll say, ah, oh, you came to the right place. Well, they'll make you fill out forms first. But then they'll say, you came to the right place. So only the food and drink God gives us will satisfy us. Not pictures of food and drink, not stories about food and drink. That's why hearing a sermon is not satisfying ultimately. That's why coming to church is ultimately not satisfying. Because otherwise we're just coming with a consumer mentality. I'm a consumer or a critic of religious goods and services. I'm walking by fancy restaurants in Paris going, that doesn't look that great. Oh, that looks pretty good. But I'm never going in, I'm never tasting, I'm never eating, I'm never drinking, I'm never participating. Only the real thing will satisfy us. No one can be hungry and thirsty for you. Maybe you have friends who say, you need the Lord, you need to get back to the Lord. You're going, no, 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 don't bother me. See, they're, they're in love, they're trying to be hungry and thirsty for you. And nor can you be hungry and thirsty for them. You will become annoying to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, if you see their absolute need for God's absolute grace and you're just hammering them about hungry and how hungry and thirsty they should be, it's all well-intentioned on our part. We call it evangelism. I'm going to pound on them until they finally are so beaten to a pulp I can tell them the good news. And they finally go, okay, fine, what's the good news? You're a sinner. Oh, well, that's, that's all that for that? And the good news is that there's one who can feed you. I'm not hungry. That's the problem. You don't know how hungry you are. See, hunger and thirst are a call to action. Will we accept or reject what the Lord offers us? I love the way uh, Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation. You see this in Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Now he's speaking to churches. He's speaking to people who are already now believers. Here I am, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Imagine, lunch with Jesus, dinner with Jesus. I had no idea that Jesus catered. He says, it says here, he'll show up, he'll knock. If you let him in, he comes in and he brings food and he wants to eat with you. Is that the most scary meal of, of, you can imagine or be the most wonderful meal you can imagine? I'm thinking it's the most wonderful meal I can imagine. If nothing else, you just ask him every question you ever wanted to ask. And then when he asks you questions, instead of you feeling nailed to the wall like a bug on a board, you say, he's asked me questions that opened me up like the woman at the well opened up. He is what we need. We don't need stories about Jesus. We need conversation with Jesus. The stories lead us, hopefully, to those conversations. If you're not right now having conversations with Jesus by reading the Word and saying, Lord, I don't understand this, or I don't agree with this, or this is so inspiring, I want, more, I want more of this. It's in that conversation that you grow, that you become engaged, you become deeply, deeply satisfied. I can't, I've said this so many times, just having seen it in our own family and in my own life. When a kid says, I'm bored at school, what does it mean? There are no meaningful relationships at my school. When the kid says they're bored, don't buy them a new toy. Figure out how to help them make friends. You see, it's a conversation we all crave. How many times have you been on a plane and somebody sits down and they want to talk to you? I do not want to talk. And, and I have felt that many times. Most of the time, though, when I've taken the time to talk, it's been delightful. And, uh, you know, we don't know what we need. God does. We abide in him, we thrive in him, not as a theoretical abstraction. I do believe in God, but as a process I'm getting to know God. We can experience God personally as we abide with him. And yet we undervalue the benefit of this, uh, the, the privilege of this. Um, it just seems kind of odd to us, impossible to us for people who are more spiritual than us. And this is how the Apostle Paul resolves it. In, in Romans 1, 16 to 18, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes in him. Now, salvation isn't just a status. You're saved, box checked. Just forget about it now. Move, go do whatever you want to do. Salvation, the ongoing process of being transformed by the living God. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in this gospel, this good news, a righteousness from God, the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for, is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Faith isn't just an ascent, I believe. Okay, fine. Faith is engagement, connectivity, involvement, wrestling with the contours of a relationship. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So we're hesitant to believe in Christ and, 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 and in the first place, okay, I'll give it, I'll be open. We come to know Christ. Whoa, this is awesome. And then, in a crazy way, having believed, we neglect abiding with him. And so we end up talking about, yeah, back at Forest Home or Young Life Camp or 
college, I, I became a follower of Jesus. Wow, that's awesome. What's happened since then? What, 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 what does it look like bringing that relationship forward? I, I'm in an age and stage of my life where all my stories about what I did 40 years ago. And I have to think, gosh, when have I climbed a, an ice waterfall lately? Mm. Let me think about that. When have I done, when have I done, when have I done? I can't do those things I did 40 years ago. So I'm going to tell those stories. But what are the equivalents of those things that engage me now? What does that look like in your life? We're hesitant to believe, and then having believed, we neglect abiding with Christ. But active faith is functional righteousness. I'm growing in this understanding of being rightly related to God and rightly related to the world I live in. Rightly related doesn't mean everybody likes me or approves of what I do. Rightly related means I'm paying attention to real needs and doing my best to respond to them in real ways. Sometimes it's by comforting, sometimes it's confronting. Like eating and drinking is a normal function of life. The Lord gives us resources to grow in His grace. Think of it as duty and delight. Some of you do not like to eat. If you could take a pill once a day and not eat, you'd be happy. I won't ask you to raise your hand, uh, but you know who you are. You don't, you're not into food, you don't like food, food's okay, but really, I, you know, it's, it's a waste of my time. I, faster, better, simpler, better. Others of you, from the moment I started talking about people who think about their next meal, you've been thinking about your next meal. You go, that's, he reminded me, yeah, what are we going to do for dinner tonight? Actually, what are we going to do for dinner tomorrow night? See, there's a duty and a delight here. Well, I don't know if I really like reading the Bible. I'm not good at reading. Okay, your duty is to figure out how to get it. Listen to it. Have somebody read it to you. Buy a cartoon version of the Bible, and, you know, like a comic book, and read the Bible. It doesn't matter. You need it. There's a duty here to, to eat. And then the delight is maybe going to surprise you every once in a while. Even the people I know who aren't into food, every once in a while I'll say, that was the most delightful meal. That was so fun. Duty and delight, like eating. So here's some of the resources God gives us. Right there in Proverbs, in the Bible that Jesus read, here it is. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, in doing what is right and just and fair. This is, this is a description that Jesus grew up hearing as a kid about what righteousness looks like and how God provides avenues and resources for righteousness, for giving prudence to those who are simple, who don't know what they don't know. Knowledge and discretion to the young, those who need to be tutored and coached and mentored. And then let the wise listen and add to their learning, because the wiser you get, the more you forget. There's many of you in this room that have forgotten more than I know. In fact, you've forgotten more than you know by now. I wish I could just take the time. I, I see this in different settings. To take the time and say, Peter Heckman, what's it like being an admiral? When you were sitting at the, at, the, at the Naval Academy as an 18-year-old kid, did you ever imagine what you'd do and see? Now, I could pick out every one of you and give some version of that. Say, it didn't have to be a big lofty thing. It's just that what did you ever expect to be doing at this point in your life? 
You see, this is this beautiful thing that we have from God. He wants us to grow and develop. So he wants us to learn and be discerning and to get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And then he says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not the cringing terror of God. Though I guarantee if God appeared in, in, in our presence, we would be cringing in terror for a moment until he said, hey, hey, don't, don't be afraid. But it's really the respect, the reverence for Almighty God who gives us life and withholds no good thing from us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But here's the catch. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I can be as foolish as an atheist. Because I say, I, I, I know that. Yes, of course you know that. You haven't actually done anything with it yet, though. Though you know it, you can quote it, you're still not really proficient at it. So come on, let's keep going. You can be a fool who believes in Jesus. You can be a fool who says they're an atheist. It just determines how much you're engaging with the living God. Israel was blessed and given instruction and practical resources. So are we in Christ. Are we any different? They were carried off into captivity for not paying attention. Why shouldn't we be carried off into captivity for not paying attention? In a sense, maybe we're in the most luxurious captivity we could have ever imagined. Maybe we're enthralled to our culture in a way that we are pretty much immobilized as a force for God. Because we are so complicit in the culture that we just go along to get along. And our gospel is the American dream, which is nothing wrong with the American dream. It's just not big enough. It's good as far as it goes. But there's so much more that we ought to be dreaming about. What would it look like if I was fully alive in Christ and functional in Christ in the context of the American dream? Wow. We could be able to correct the things that are missing in the American dream or distorted in the American dream or, or corrosive in the American dream. See, the good news of, of the gospel is that God's righteousness is given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. We're declared righteous by Christ and yet, in His Holy Spirit, we get to grow in that righteousness. Something has been given to us, but now we get to fully participate in experiencing it. It's as if somebody said, here's a big chunk of money that's been saved for you, and now it's being given to you. I'm rich. Let us show you how to use it wisely. I told you the story about um, our five-year-old, uh, five and two weeks, four-year-old grandson who was hired by... Um, a friend of the family, he's a businessman, and uh, he said, Miles, your job is to be the vice president of, of package collection for my company. Meaning he was going to be away on vacation and a bunch of packages were going to be delivered to his house. And so he wrote out this really hysterically funny, brilliant contract uh, and uh, it's a corporate document. HR would be proud of him. And there was incentives and bonuses and responsibilities. And, and so he goes through it very carefully with Miles. He's just kind of like, um, and finally, you know, uh, and I'll be paying you this much money. And Miles is on it. So he would get his dad or his mom, Mom, Dad, I got to go buy um, the house and check on the, on, the, on the packaging. So he was into it. And so I was there when he was getting paid. The guy would hire him, came over, he said, hey, um, I've come to pay you for your services. And Miles was like, okay. And he was smart. He owed him 20 bucks, but he did it in ones. Miles, you could see his eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And he, 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 in his own four-year-old way, said, I'm set for life. I am so set for life. It does not get better than this. I'm taking care of all of you. You'll want for nothing. And so the joy of it was he was learning something about participating in the real world. It was an experience of righteousness, being responsible, being trustworthy. It was a little four-year-old version of it. And all that money, enough for a lifetime and more. You see, he needs, he needs tutoring and mentoring. And then the question, you know, the, the, the mentoring will come from his mom and dad. Hey, what should you do with the money? Should we give some uh, to the church? Should we save some? Should we use some of it to, for a goal? What are you going to do if you earn more money like this? Here's how you manage money. I remember taking our little tiny girls to the bank, getting the manager at you know, Bank of America down in the village. And said, Can we meet with you? And talking with the girls. These girls have some money they like to deposit in the bank. And the, the, he explained what it meant to have a banking relationship. And they walked home like, thank you very much. <laughs> I hope they take good care of my 30 bucks. <laughs> How are you taking good care of your 30 bucks? Israel was in constant crisis because they refused to grow in righteousness. How are you doing with that? What they did was the spiritual equivalent of anorexia. I think you all know what anorexia is. It's the abnormal loss of the appetite for food. Closely linked to anorexia is bulimia, binging and purging on empty calories. We are a binging and purging culture. But when it comes to spiritual things, uh, we are anorexic. Uh, God said through Jeremiah, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own wells, broken wells that cannot hold water. Cisterns, he calls them, water containers. Isaiah says, These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the prophets, See no more visions. We're done with all these visions. Give us no more visions of what is right. Rather, tell us pleasant things, illusions. Leave this way, get off this path that you've been on, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's our challenge and dilemma. Back then, it was the people of Israel's challenge and dilemma. It's our challenge and dilemma. So confessing our need for hunger and, and, and thirst for righteousness is an expression of righteousness. Confessing is an expression of righteousness. Humbling is an expression of righteousness. Seeking help is an expression of righteousness. Being confident in what you're learning is an expression of righteousness. Being bold Stepping out in faith is an expression of righteousness. Saying, I don't know, I'm not sure what to do, is an expression of righteousness. It's about learning to hunger and thirst for God. And when we fail, we confess, we repent, we realign, and we move ahead by His grace. Righteousness is a state of grace, and righteousness is an exercise of grace. It's a gift, it's a goal. Receive the gift and pursue the goal. Acknowledging our thirst and hunger for righteousness is the path to maturity. It's okay to say, I need to eat every day, because you do. You can't eat enough in one day and then skip for a month. 
You have to drink and eat daily. When I was in college, um, I, I was fascinated by linguistics. I got a degree in business, but I wanted to get a minor in linguistics. I studied linguistics and did an intensive program at the University of Washington. And they brought in these famous linguists from around the world and professional linguists, I guess professional cultural anthropologists. And some of them were translating languages that were not written, no orthography, no, no alphabet. They were, they were taking these languages and creating a system so that people could can write down their, their language and their culture. And, and they, they would translate um, the Bible into these languages. And they had PhDs and lots of experience, but they were like Indiana Jones people. And this one woman was from the deepest, darkest parts. Of, she's an American, very sophisticated academic from America, but she spent so many years of her life studying these, these uh, Incan, long-lost Incan languages in the, in the depth of the Ecuadorian jungles. And to have a conversation with her was just the most fascinating thing. And she talked about the culture and how the people were, it was a rough, tough culture, uh, these isolated tribes. Um, and they were fierce and they could be dangerous, but they could also be, you know, very hospitable. And they were always, they were always cooking. They always had food going. And so if a person came into their own village or any village, they would say in this ancient language, and it sounds funny to our ears, they would come into the village and they'd go, Nimayantiwala. And it just feels awkward to say that. We don't do that with, with vowels. Nimayantiwala. It means I come hungry. Now, if, if, if a, a part of the village came in, it'd be, yeah, yeah, great, you know. If we walked in, it would blow their mind. If we walked in with that woman who's a translator, and they didn't know who we were, but they knew that we were not them, and all of a sudden we said, Nimayantiwala. They'd be like laughing and cheering and going, and, and because they don't know how to speak to us, what would they say back to us? Shiwala shalakwinoso. Shiwala shalakwinoso. Come and eat. We've been waiting for you. We're ready for you. Come and eat. Where are you when it comes to being hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Are you? Well, come and eat. He's expecting you. He's ready for you. How's that going for you? Are you eating? Are you getting your spiritual nourishment? Are you learning to feed yourself spiritually? Are you so far along that you're learning to feed, help other people feed themselves spiritually? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are you as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. This world cannot satisfy, but the kingdom of heaven does, now and forever. And so, Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters, that we would learn to be hungry and thirsty for the right things, for the things that you tell us are the most essential things, for righteousness that connects us in our hearts to you, to one another, and to a world that desperately needs you. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> this is a time to offer yourself to the Lord. Um, uh, Jana told you that you can contribute uh, uh, if you want to contribute financially. But right now, this is offering you to Jesus uh, in, in the few moments we, we have remaining in worship. Where are you with him? Uh, pour out your heart to him through the music uh, as you sing to him, as you listen to the music and speak to him, however you want to do it. Um, let's worship him together.
regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life was born Jesus is calling we can pray with you uh, about for a concern, a person you're concerned for, for yourself, go right out the corner into that lovely garden, a prayer garden, and there'll be uh, people there who will uh, take a moment to pray with you. They'll say, how can we pray for you? If you want to describe what you need prayed for, feel free. If you don't, just say, just pray, and they'll do that. Um, if we can help you take the next step in your relationship with God, maybe that first step of receiving Him as Lord and Savior, maybe you're coming back to Him having been gone. Uh, maybe you're just figuring out, okay, I'm ready to grow. What do I do? What do I, what do, I do? Where do I go to do that? We want to help you do that. Uh, get something to eat and have a great rest of your day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with Him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. to